Well, we're pumped that, uh, pumped that you're here for the final week in this year's At The Movies series, uh, which we've entitled Misread, looking at passages in the scriptures that are oftentimes, and asking, could these be actually, these famous passages oftentimes misread, misunderstood, misinterpreted the actual meaning behind them? Uh, and this morning, we've, we've got uh, a big one on our hands. And just to just, I'm going to need, just ask for your forgiveness on the front end. Uh, this morning is a tough one. Uh, many forests have been cut down to, to make books that have filled all, you know, with all kinds of words on the subject. Uh, it's a big one. It's a tough one. It's going to be like a heady one more than normal. And uh, so you're going to have to lean in. But to set up the conversation, we're going to look at a, uh, some scenes from a film that I love uh, called The Adjustment Bureau. And one of the things that I find that a lot of people actually haven't seen this movie. And uh, it's one of my faves. I love it. A lot of people are like, I think I remember seeing a preview five-ish years ago. Uh, I suspect it's because Matt Damon's in it, and uh, he's kind of a hottie. But the reason, I love this, the reason I love this film is the theological dilemma and idea that it presents. And what you're going to get introduced to is the Adjustment Bureau, which are these angelic figures and they work for the chairman who represents God in the film. And the issue is the chairman has a plan for everybody's life and how their life is supposed to go. And the Adjustment Bureau's job is to make sure that everything goes according to plan. The problem is, as humans, as we make decisions, it creates ripples. And those decisions affect other people's decisions. And if there's too many ripples that are not going according to plan, it, it needs to be adjusted very, very quickly and very, very aggressively. And so we're going to actually uh, lean in, and you're going to be introduced to Matt Damon, who is a politician, and he's fallen in love with a dancer that God has decided he's not supposed to be with. And he accidentally walks in and actually sees the Adjustment Bureau at work. So without any further words, uh, let's watch the Adjustment Bureau. Frustrating, isn't it? My name is Thompson. Whatever happened to free will? We actually tried free will before. After taking you from hunting and gathering to the height of the Roman Empire, we stepped back to see how you do on your own. You gave us the Dark Ages for five centuries, until finally we decided we should come back in. The chairman thought that maybe we just needed to do a better job with teaching you how to ride a bike before taking the training wheels off again. So we gave you the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, scientific revolution. For 600 years, we taught you to control your impulses with reason. Then in 1910, we stepped back again. Within 50 years, you'd brought us World War I, the Depression, fascism, the Holocaust, and capped it off by bringing the entire planet to the brink of destruction in the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that point, a decision was taken to step back in again before you did something that even we couldn't fix. You don't have free will, David. You have the appearance of free will. You expect me to believe that? I make decisions every day. You have free will over which toothpaste you use or which beverage to order at lunch, but humanity just isn't mature enough to control the important things. So you handle the important things. Well, the last time I checked, the world's a pretty screwed up place. It's still here. If we'd left things in your hands, it wouldn't be. Oh, pretty good, huh? 
It's a fascinating, fascinating idea, and a very theological one, and believe it or not, it's a very, very, it's a very common one. Um, some of you know I'm originally from Minnesota, and uh, my wife and I actually lived up in the Twin Cities for a while, and some of you might remember from the news uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a bridge on one of the interstates that collapsed, and a number of men and women and children uh, in their vehicles plunged into the waters below and lost their lives, and it was really a, a shocking thing to the city, because it was a bridge that many of us had driven over many times, and then one day it just fell apart. And there was a pastor in this community, a very well-known pastor, big church, and he, very, he publicly got up, and he said, the reason that this happened is this is, this is God's judgment on our city uh, for condoning abortion and homosexuality and a number of other things. In other words, God is the one behind it. He was pulling the strings. He decided that one day he would just blow up the bridge, and that's what took place. And for some of us, I think it's shocking, it's jolting to think that a pastor, or maybe just anybody, would think that and actually say that if they think that. But the truth is, there's a lot of people that think along these lines. Um, That behind the scenes, God is essentially a master puppeteer, pulling the levers and manipulating things, much like uh, the Adjustment Bureau and this idea presented in the film, that God is the one behind so many different things that happened. Right, so when something happens in their life, right, one of the instinctive questions is, why would God do this? Right, well, that's a, that's a theological statement right there. Right? It's assumption that God was the one that did that, that made that happen. Right, and so we have to ask a very important question. And the question is, you know, is, is that how God works? You know, is God a master puppeteer who works by coercion and control? Or does God take risks and actually give us free will? Or do we just appear to be free? Uh, when in reality, God meticulously cro- controls everything, right? Is our future really predetermined, uh, and we're just going through the motions, like actors that are just reading a script uh, that's already been written? And it's a very well, it's a very well-known idea, and a lot of people believe it. And so, to look at this, we're actually going to look at a very difficult passage in Romans nine, uh, and it's actually what you might call like the cornerstone of this whole theology. Um, this, is, this is the most widely used proof text. And this is a passage, by the way, that's been messing with people's heads for hundreds of years since the 4th century. So if it, if it hurts a little bit, that's okay. So this is, this is what we read, beginning uh, Romans 9, uh, beginning in verse 18. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. All right, just think about that for a moment. All right, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will, right? If, if this is God's will and he's the one actually doing it, how can you actually blame me because I'm just being and doing what God has predetermined I would do? All right, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? All right, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use or derogatory use or ugly use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, created for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy? Right, so he creates some and he says, all right, for you, I've predetermined you're going to be a recipient of grace. Right, I'm just going to pour my blessing on you. I'm, you over here, I'm going to, I've created you for wrath. I'm just going to pour my wrath on you. And I've done it so that you guys will say, oh, man, I'm, thank you for not doing that to us. Glory to God. 
That's kind of the idea. And these vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, uh, even us whom he has called, uh, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, all right? Ouch, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. And there's different ways to read this passage. And one of the most common ones is the deterministic kind of way of reading this. And oftentimes it, call, it gets called different things. Uh, Calvinism is kind of the theological word. And not all Calvinists would ascribe to this. A lot of them would. And there's a lot of people who are not Calvinists who do think this way and believe this way. And essentially the idea here is that God controls everything. Everything is a part of his plan. When a tragedy happens, right, that's just a part of his perfect and glorious plan. And you hear it in words like this when people say, look, God's still on the throne. God is still in control. Right? We may not understand it, but God knows exactly what he's doing. Again, revealing what they really believe is that God is the one blowing things up and taking lives. Right? In fact, I remember hearing about a news story a number of years ago. Uh, there's a gentleman, his wife uh, just kind of went crazy, and she killed their five children and took her own life. And in the interview, he said, uh, I guess heaven just needed, God just needed a few more angels. You know, which I remember one, hearing one pastor say, well, then why isn't God on trial? You know, and it's again this idea that, I mean, is that, is that the way that God works? You know, he gets lonely, wants some angels, and so he takes ours. Is that, is that essentially the way that the world works and the kind of God that he is? Right? And this is a cornerstone passage again. And it gets, it gets applied temporarily, like in this temporal world, and eternally. Right? So there's some people that from the moment they are created, God has decided you're going to spend eternity with me in heaven, and you are going to spend, you guys over here, eternity in hell. And many of the people who believe this, they believe that hell is an eternal, conscious, unending, hopeless suffering forever and ever, and that God does this for the express purpose that these people over here would say, wow, God, thank you so much for not doing that to me. Aren't you great? And we, wor- we worship you for being so merciful. Really tough idea. And, you know, essentially what it sounds like Paul is saying is like, and for those of you over here, right, who would say, look, uh, hold on, why do you blame us? Right, you created us this way. I'm just being the way that you made me. And by the way, if it's, everything's predetermined, God's the one is, who's making them say that, so I, which makes you wonder about things. Um, right, and, and God, you know, essentially seems to sign off on that idea. But it does have some curious, like, hints in it, right? So, so, so why, for example, why does it say that God has to endure with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, right? If they've been created for destruction, they're just being the way that God's made them. They're acting the way, thinking the way, behaving the way that God predetermined, right? Why would God have to be patient with them? They're just being the way that they've been made, right? And what this means, I mean, just, just sit on this for a minute. What this means, if this is true, is that you, uh, your loved ones, Uh, The person sitting next to you right now uh, is destined for one way or another. And that some of them have been predestined to spend eternity away from God, cut off. And that's essentially true of everybody. Everybody is destined. And everything in between from the day you're born to the day that you die and spend eternity, uh, everything is just a perfect expression of God's plan. Every war every bomb that's dropped, right? Every child that is molested, every girl that is sold into human trafficking, every holocaust, every life that is extinguished in a gas chamber, all, all the beautiful stuff, but all the nightmares as well are a perfect expression of God's plan, all of it to bring him glory. And, I, and right, it's a troubling thought. Uh, but man, this has profound implications on the way that we live and the way that we understand the world and the way that we respond when things happen to us, right? All of it. And, and I will say this. Uh, 
it's understandable when you read a passage like this why some people land here. Right? Just to be fair, it is. It's, it's curious. Nobody thought this way until the 4th century. But then St. Augustine came along and he presented this idea. And it's like we've been a broken record just having a hard time getting off of this idea. But you understand. And I'll say this too. Like I really admire people who actually land in this place. Um, because, man, you've really got to have a deep conviction that you're going to believe everything that the Bible says, even something that, to me, sounds just absolutely ugly and horrifying, right? And so all that to say, like, people land there, like, I, I have a lot of admiration uh, for you, um, but I don't get the joy part. You know, I, I, this kind of an idea, I don't get how one finds joy, because there are some that's like, find joy in being the elect. But what it also means is that, you know, for some of us, uh, first of all, we don't know that we're going to, we are actually been predestined to spend eternity with God, right? It's always kind of a question in our minds. St. Augustine, he had a friend who was a monk for 74 years. And then at 74, uh, he fell in love with a young nun and they ran off together, uh, which is pretty great. And he actually made the comment, he's like, well, I guess he wasn't actually the, the elect, it turns out. You know, and so it's like, man, that happens. You know what I mean? Like, what if I faithfully follow God to ministry for a number of years, but at some point I fall off the wagon? You know, so I, I don't actually ever know that I'm in this group over here. Right, and what about my kids? You know, like, honestly. So I might be actually predestined to spend eternity with God and be a, a vessel of mercy, but my wife, my kids might be actually predestined to, to, to spend eternity away from God and being objects of judgment and wrath. And I'm supposed to find joy in that, saying, oh, God, praise you for your mercy that I'm not one of them. Sorry, kids. Right? It's really just a tough thing to swallow. And here's, here's just kind of what I want to put on the table uh, this morning. And, I'm, of course, you know probably where I'm going with this. And that is that, thank God, we don't actually have to believe that. Um, we don't have to. We need to respect those who do because we're all part of the church. And we can understand why some people land in that place. But... but uh, and I truly commend you if you do land in that place. But we don't have to believe it. And honestly, what I would suggest is that the, the, the all of Scripture in whole, and Romans 9 in particular, actually suggests the opposite. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So here's, here's the thing. Right, this whole series we've been talking about, just the, the hard work of like trying to determine the meaning and truth behind Scripture. Right, and, and so I want to just basically put on the table this morning four points, four things to keep in mind, when we run into a passage like this, where you, you read something and it just doesn't sit right. You don't understand it. You don't get it. Uh, and a couple of these we've already done throughout the series, but we're going to apply it to Romans 9 this morning. All right, first of all, if, if you're taking notes, this is number one. Uh, we need to ask, how does this compare with what we know to be true of Jesus? And we talk about this a lot here. But that is that we believe, because Scripture testifies to it, that all of Scripture points to Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He's not another revelation. He's not just a part of the picture. He is the picture. Right? He is the most clearest picture of the character of God that we have anywhere else, and that is in Jesus. And that's why we read things like this in Hebrews 1.3 that says this. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory. I love that. So Jesus, Jesus radiates the glory of God. When the glory of God shines... It looks like Jesus. And it says this, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and, get this, the exact representation of his being. The exact representation, the perfect representation and reflection of his character, who God is, what God is like. Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like. And what we know, if that is true, 
that God, at his very essence, is a God of love. Right? First uh, John 4.8 says that much. It says, God is love. And in Jesus, we actually get to see what flesh on that love actually looks like. Uh, and, and what that love looks like is, is God showing up and surprising everybody as a crucified Messiah, taking all of the betrayal, all of the sin, all of the war, all of the abuse, all of the violence, all the disease, and not dishing it out on objects of wrath, but rather taking all of it onto himself as he prays for the people who crucify him, as he gets on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet who are about to run away in fear, right? That's what the love of God actually looks like. It takes all of it on himself. And, for, and this is amazing, right? So all of it on the cross. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verses 18 and 24 says this, right? For the message of the cross, right? It, it's foolishness to those who are pairing, perishing. And, and it is foolishness, right? It, this is why some people just can't get on board with this whole idea, right? God crucified. It, it goes against everything that we assume about power and about God. But it's foolishness to them. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? Verse 24 says this, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? So where, where does wisdom start? It starts at the cross. What does the power of God looks like? Uh, it looks like the cross. This is, this is what it looks like. This is what God, how God works. Right? I love the way that Greg Boyd uh, puts it. He, puts, he says this, he says, when God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it looks like him getting crucified for a race of rebels who couldn't deserve it less. And he does it out of love for these rebels in order to redeem these, love, these rebels. That's what God's power looks like. Right? But again, that contradicts everything that we assume about power. Right? And this is one of the reasons I suggest to you why I'm part of the reason why I've just come to be so convinced of the gospel is nobody creates a religion like this. We know what religion looks like and, and what we assume power to look like, right? right? It looks like Zeus power, right? It's muscle power. It's Schwarzenegger and his prime kind of power, right? It's, it's coercion. It is, it is violence. It is authority. It is control. But Jesus shows up, and he doesn't look anything like Zeus. In fact, he looks like the opposite of Zeus, right? This is a God who lays down his life for his enemies, who takes everything that's wrong in the world and he doesn't dish out judgment on the world and just wipe the slate clean. He takes all of it on himself and forgives. Completely goes against this whole idea. But the deterministic way of reading Romans 9 is like, it's like Zeus' power on steroids. Right? It's God saying, I'm going to get my way. I'm going to do whatever I want. Right? I don't like you. Right? Or I just feel like I'm going to pour out my wrath on you. I'm going to pour my wrath out on you. That's what I feel like. Uh, you know... I guess I'll give you mercy. That's what I'm feeling like. But essentially, it's completely up to me, and I'm just going to do whatever I want. But that is not what we see in Jesus at all. It's the opposite of Zeus' power, right? It's Calvary power, and it looks completely different. So when we look at this, this should immediately flag something for us, that there's got to be something off here because it looks so incredibly different uh, than Jesus. It It means that we need to keep searching, Need to keep searching because of things like this, what we just spoke to. And I love this passage. John 5, 39 says this. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But all the scriptures point to me. Right? They're all about me. Right? The absolute revelation, they, they, they testify about me. They bear witness to me. That's where everything's moving. Right? The culmination of the story of God. The scriptures are about Jesus. Right? So all of it, all of it is supposed to point to Christ, not directly contradict Christ. 
Right? So again, immediately we should cause us to at least pause and be like, man, something is off here. Something's off. All right? So we, we always, we always got to look to Jesus and keep that front and center and compare what we're reading with what we know to be true about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Number two, and this is something we've said throughout the series, and that is you got to look at the context. You got to look at the context. Idea that we've said over and over and over again. Right? Every word in Scripture is connected to a sentence, and that sentence is connected to a paragraph. And that paragraph is connected to a stream of thought oftentimes, which is connected to a larger body, like a letter, which is connected to the entire uh, counsel of God that we find in the Bible. And so we don't... So anyway, so we, if we zoom out just a little bit, what we find, and, and I just challenge you to do this. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but the t- cool thing is it's all going to be digital. And if you actually want to do the work and read it for yourself, you can totally do that. But in the beginning of Romans 9, right, Paul is going to set up his argument. And he's going to let us know that there's what the, the question that he's going to try to answer. And, that, and, and, and so in verse 2, here's what he says. He's, he's, here's why he's writing. He's incredibly grieved. Uh, it says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because most of my fellow Jews are rejecting Christ. Right? They're rejecting the gospel. They're walking away. And so he is, he's brokenhearted. Right? And, and, and there's a problem that this is raising. It's a theological problem that apparently is is really front and center in the Jewish community. And that is, is God faithful? Like, can he be trusted? Right, because there's a promise that is front and center in the Old Testament that begins the story of the people of God, and that is that God promised to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, of Israel, the God of Israel. And now, if a lot of Israel, the Jewish people, are rejecting Christ, that creates a very big theological problem. And that is, is God faithful? Right, was he just blowing smoke? Because now it doesn't look like he is uh, the God of Israel. So he begins to make his case in verse 6. He says, he says this, It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, right? the true Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they just naturally all Abraham's children. And he's going to go on to make this case through Romans 9. In fact, this is an argument he's going to talk about in Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. He's just going to go on this thing, and he's long-winded, and I can relate with that, and so can you. Um, But he's going to argue that the true Israel has never been about ethnicity or bloodline or, or religious duty. He's going to argue that the true Israel has always been those people who have faith, the faith of Abraham, faith in God's character. Right? Faith in, in God's covenant. Like that's, that's what it is. It isn't about all that other stuff. Right? And now, like the door has just been, it's, it's just more visible now. Right? Because now we got all, much to their surprise, all these Jews are coming in, uh, or all the Jews are running out, and, and they're depending on all these different things for their salvation. But all of a sudden, all these people who have been on the outside are placing their faith in Jesus, right? the faith of Abraham, the faith in God, and all of a sudden they find themselves uh, on the inside. And so just so you know, and, and later in Romans uh, which chapter is? Chapter 11. We're kind of all made honorary Jews. So I don't know if you know that, but you're an honorary Jew, right, if you have faith in Jesus. This, that one's free, right? That's what true Israel is. And here's the thing, all right? When you read Romans 9 through this lens, that this is the case that Paul is making. This is the issue that he's addressing. His whole goal and what he's going to write in the next three chapters is to answer this question. Is God faithful? Right, and talking about the true Israel and saying, yes, he is faithful. And when you read it that way, it elicits a very different meaning than if you're reading it about, oh, is this talking about individuals being damned or saved uh, before they were born? Which is a question, by the way, that we're reading in the text. We're not actually getting from the text. You never get that question when you're reading it in the context. So you got to, that's, again, that's why context is so incredibly important. Number three. Here's another one. And, and so this is just natural. We know this. 
but I'm going to remind you. All right, just ask when you're reading a passage, how does the author summarize his thoughts? Right, if he's making an argument and making a case, and in the end he says, in conclusion, right, or so what shall we say then, or therefore, all to say, dot, 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 it gives us a really good idea of what his whole point was and what he was trying to get across, right? And so, unfortunately, in Romans 9, he gives us a great summary statement, right? In the beginning, the very beginning, he's already told us what he's going to be addressing, which he does in the next three chapters. And then he gives us a great summary statement of what he said so far uh, in Romans 9. And, and by the way, if we were reading this from like a Calvinistic mindset, predestination kind of a mindset, here's the summary that we would expect if it's about, you know, eternal damnation or salvation and predestination. Uh, lots of Asians. We would expect something like this. Uh, so what shall we say then? Right? God decides who he's going to have mercy on and who he's going to pour his wrath on. No one can question him because he is God, and that's his right. Some of us are saved, some of us are damned, and it's God's prerogative to determine who that is. Right? We, something like that. Something. But it's not like that at all. His summary statement is this. this is, and, he, and what he's going to do is he's going to answer the question that he raised at the beginning of the chapter. And he, he says this. He says, What shall we say then, in conclusion, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness to be rightly related to God, they didn't pursue that, have now obtained it. And it's a righteousness by faith, right? Making them a part of the true Israel. But people, the people of Israel, the ethnic Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. All right, get this. Paul just summarized his argument by appealing to free will. He's highlighting free will in his summary. Right? He's saying there are some people who have chosen, they've made the choice to trust in religious stuff to save them. Right? Their ethnicity, their, their sacrifices, their law— and that's their choice. And as a result, they find themselves on the outside of God's grace right now. But then there's all these other people who are not religious people, many of them. And they have chosen to, they've made the choice to place their faith and trust in Jesus. And they now find themselves on the inside. All right. And so the, any interpretation of Romans 9 that discredits free will and argues that free will doesn't exist cannot be true. It cannot be right. Because Paul just went out of his way to highlight it and, and summarizing his whole argument here. Okay. <clears throat> And I will say this. Okay. And by the way, he talks about free will over and over and over. 9, 10, and 11, still same stream of thought. He's talking about this true Israel thing. Is God faithful? And he's coming back to free will. The importance of our choices, people's choices, over and over and over again. Right? And, and so when we read things like this, for example, Romans 10, 21. But concerning Israel, the Lord says, All day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Right? God is he's pleading with people. Come, come back to me. Right, run to me. Stop trusting in your ethnicity and your bloodline and your background and your sacrifices. Come to me, please. He's pleading with them. Right now, the, the Calvinistic deterministic way of reading this is: Why would God do that if everything's determined and they don't have any choice in the matter? It creates a very schizophrenic God, where He's like, "Come to me, please. Come to me." Oh, wait a second. I created you not to come to me. Oh, but I want you to come to me. Please run into my arms. Oh, wait a second. I, that's right. I don't want you to because I created you that way. Right? Conflicted God, schizophrenic God. Right? It, it, there's just there's just no way. Just no way. It doesn't. It just logically, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem at all like that's what Paul is saying here uh, when you read it. Uh, both the the context, the focus of Paul's argument, the way he summarizes his argument. All of it points to this idea of the importance of the choices that we make. Right? And, and my last, the last thing, where, number four, is this. Uh, I think I mentioned context, right? <laughs> Once or twice. Um, if you're reading the New Testament, and the author 
shares a metaphor that comes from the Old Testament. We've got to ask, what did that mean in the Old Testament? Right, what was the context that it was being used when it was originally used? Because that author, when they're using that metaphor, almost always, in fact, I can't think of an example when this isn't the case, right, is presupposing the meaning that's there. And they're utilizing that meaning. Because they presuppose, because the the, most of the audience is familiar with it. The moment they use, he uses a metaphor, which he's, he, he does, and we're going to look at, everybody in the audience who has a Jewish background is like, oh, yeah, that's from Jeremiah. And they know exactly what it's being written about. So you got to back up and ask, because the New Testament author, they might be by applying it in a different way or putting a spin on it, but they're not completely changing the meaning, right? It's a new twist on an old meaning. So he does use a metaphor. And that metaphor is that of a lump of clay. And <clears throat> there's only one place uh, in the scriptures in the Old Testament or New Testament that unpacks this idea, this lump of clay, what it means. And that's in Jeremiah 18. And this is, this is what, we, what we read What's, what's going on, I'll just give you a little context for this. What's going on is, is God's people are, are rebelling. They're sinning. They're running from God, not to God. And, uh, and God has basically said, look, if you keep going in this direction and rebelling and sinning against me, uh, I'm going to hand you over to be plundered. That's just what's going to happen. Right? Judgment is going to come. Right? So some people got deterministic. And they're like, they just wash their hands. It's like, well, there's nothing we can do. God said it. Judgment is coming. But God says, no. Right, this is what we read in Jeremiah 18, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Right, go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Other translations say that the clay was spoiled. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as, best, as, as seemed best to him. Right, so notice again, from the, from the get-go, the focus is not the power of the potter to force his will, to coerce, right? That's not the focus uh, at all. Um, it's, it's about the potter's ability to save. The ability to save a spoiled piece of clay, a marred piece of clay, to make something that was not useful, useful again. All right, then, then we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, Can I not do with you? Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. Right? Notice again, it does not say, therefore I can manipulate you and coerce you into whatever I please. If I want to throw you into the kiln, I can do that. I'm the potter. No, it's not what it's talking about. Verse 7, if at any time I announced that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, that judgment's coming... And if this nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict it with the calamity that I had said I was going to do. Right? Did you catch that? Right? He says, look, if you turn, I will turn. If you choose this, I'll choose that. If you respond, I will respond because I am the potter and you're the clay. You're never too far gone. You're never too far, uh, you're never beyond saving. You're never beyond redeeming, right? I am the great potter and I can take something that is broken and wasted and useless and make it useful again, (laughs) right? That and your job is simply to take action in a faithful way and be moldable. And I can do more than you can do. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> and, <laughs> man, I could go forever, but I'm not going to. 
And when we choose, choose to not be moldable, then uh, God does act like he said he was going to act, and there is judgment. And one of the things that it talks about over and over, and Paul talks about this, is that we become hard, which is a great, great word picture as it relates to us talking about clay. And notice, though, and this is one of the arguments some people will make, and they'll talk about, you know, God hardening people, because the scriptures does say that God hardens people. But what we read is stuff like this, and this is Romans eleven twenty. This is in the course of this argument we we're looking at. Paul's making this case. And it says this. It says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. Right? The hardening became, came because of their unbelief. Right? They chose not to believe and rebel, and then the hardening came. Notice it doesn't say, and Paul doesn't write this, that their hearts were hardened, and therefore then they didn't believe. And God did it. He hardened their hearts so they wouldn't believe, so that he could have wrath on them because that's what was predestined to happen. It's not the argument that he makes at all. Again, he's responding to the choice of their heart. If you're going to be disobedient, you're going to become hard. You know, which, by the way, Hebrews talks about as well. Right? You, you rebel against God, heart is going to become hard, and your ears are going to become dull of hearing. Right? And, 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 but here's the thing. If you read Romans 11, oh man, if you read Romans 11, right, the whole point, though, of hardening somebody's heart, it's not to inflict wrath. It's not to perpetuate unbelief so that God can just smite them finally because he's been waiting around to do it. He does it specifically so that they'll come to their senses and realize that they need to get back and walk with Jesus. They need to get back in God's good graces. And then, at the very end, Paul, in fact, he actually expresses great confidence that even though right now, at that point in human history, that many of the Jews were rejecting Christ, he, he communicates this incredible belief that, that they will all eventually turn and place their faith and trust in Jesus right? That's what the whole hardening piece is meant to do. That's the kind of God that God is. Is he all-powerful? Absolutely. Is he sovereign? Yes. Does he hold the cosmos in the palm of his hands? He does, but not as a master puppeteer that's, that's, that's micromanaging every one of our decisions uh, and, and moving everything into alignment with his one and every desire for every choice that we ever might make. No, he's wise. He's, he's flexible. He's, he's responsive. Right? We, he, we act and he acts. We respond, he responds. We go this way, he goes that way. Right? It's a dynamic, dynamic relationship. And he's certainly not the kind of God that is responsible for every horror that happens in the world. Right? For every bomb that gets dropped and, and every tsunami and earthquake that takes human life and every child that gets raped. That is, that is not, God doesn't do that stuff. The enemy does stuff like that. People do stuff like that. But God doesn't do stuff like that. Right? God's, God's power looks like Jesus on the cross. God's, God's wisdom looks like Jesus on the cross. Right? That, when God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it looks like him taking all of that junk onto himself so that we can be made new. It isn't, it isn't Zeus power, right? It's Calvary power, right? The God who shocked the world, showing up as a crucified Messiah, right? And, and he wins us by the beauty of his love, saying, come to me, and his hands are outstretched. And here's the thing, if you're here this morning, and you have never followed Jesus, and you've never ran into his arms, you've got to know that even in this moment, his arms are outstretched, saying, come to me. Stop hardening your heart. Stop choosing all of these other things, Right? You've been created for this. Let's start this thing together. This is what you were made for. This is what you're, you were created for. So here's, here's where I want to close and land the plane this morning. If you came in, uh, hopefully you got uh, 
a little piece of putty. All right, and if you didn't, can we, can we get some of those dished out just in case? If you didn't, if you just want to raise your hand, if you would. Did pretty much everybody get one, most of us? Good, 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 good. All right, I want to, uh, I want to ignite your imagination a little bit and just do a, a prayerful, reflective exercise as we just invite God's Spirit to be here right now. And what I want to invite you to do is to take out that piece of clay, all right, to hold it in your hand. And, and I want to invite you to just close your eyes if you would. And can we get the lights turned down? That'd be cool. Because I want to create a moment. A moment of stillness and of quiet. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to hold that putty in your hand. And I want you to picture your life. Because this is, this is your life. I want you to feel the texture of the putty. Feel how workable it is. Its ability to take shape and to be reshaped. Its ability to change. Or the endless possibilities that are represented in that little piece of clay. Right? It is not fixed. Right? What your little piece of clay, your life will look like in the end, is not fixed. Right? You are not a slave to your past. Right? You are not a victim to what anyone said you are or you are not. You are not a victim to your genes, to what was handed down to you by your parents and their parents and their parents. And you need to reject any voice in your head that suggests that you can't help it. This is just who you are. This is the way you're always going to be. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That stuff can, can influence us, but it does not determine who we are or who we become. This, this in your hand, this is your life. I feel that clay between your fingers. Its ability to mold and change and be transformed. And hear God's word in Jeremiah. They're saying, although this piece of clay, it's marred, it's spoiled, I can still redeem it. I can still save it. I can do so much through this piece of clay. Do you not think that I can do with, with you what the potter did with that spoiled piece of clay? Right, your life, the person you are, the legacy you leave behind, the wake that you leave when your short time is over can go a thousand different directions. And you need to ask what it is that you want to leave behind. And there are two major forces at work that are going to largely determine what your little piece of clay will look like, and that is the work of the potter and the choices that you make. And that is a dynamic, flexible, responsive relationship. Because your destiny is not fixed. Your tomorrow is not determined. What God does in your life and what God does with and through your life will depend largely on the kind of clay that you choose to be. Our call is one to be active and to make choices that align with what God has called us to do. All right, don't, don't live a selfish, complacent life and then assume that you're just going to drift in what God desires of your little piece of clay. It's not how life works. It's not how faith works. Life and faith is like a bicycle. Right? If you insist on not doing anything meaningful, if you stop, you'll fall over. God has called you to move. God has called you to pray, to choose, to live. But our primary call is to be moldable in the hands of the potter. To be tuned in and responsive to the leading and work of his hands. This is your life. 
Lord God, we come to you acknowledging who we are before you. A little piece of clay in your hands. Lord God, all of our lives look very different. And for some of us, we may be living a life that is very moldable in your hands, making choices that honor you, seeking to follow faithfully, even knowing that we don't, don't do it perfectly by any means. But for some of us, Lord, I'd imagine that we're in a place where our hearts have been pretty hard. We have not been moldable in your hands. Lord God, and if that is us, if that is me, Lord God, right now, change that. Take this little piece of clay that looks wasted and lost, redeem it, save it, use it, change it, transform it as only you can. And Lord God, I pray for those in this room who are listening in and they have never surrendered to the hands of the potter. They never have. And Lord God, right now in this moment, what I ask that they would hear and know is that your arms are still outstretched and the invitation stands, come to me, I'm pleading with you. You're not beyond saving. so much life left to be lived. Lord God, we come before you now as your church and we pray that you would make us not just individually but collectively soft clay, moldable clay in your hands. We come before you now.